Well, we've been looking at the book of Ephesians. Hopefully you know that. Um, this is our, I think, our seventh sermon out of Ephesians. And, and so far we've just been in the first chapter, which is that incredible blessing that Nick uh, prayed about. And it ends with this sentence, Ephesians chapter two, uh, verse 22, and God put all things under Christ's feet and made him head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Anakephalio, remember that? Uh, under, under one wounded head, united under one wounded head, forgiven of our trespasses, redeemed by his blood, we are to be included in his body, circulating his blood, and he is life. And then chapter two, verse one, and you were dead. Remember that, when you were dead? You were dead, dead. St. Paul writes, and, and you were dead. I mean, if, maybe, if, if that surprises you, maybe you're still dead. Or, or most, mostly dead. You know, a Christian is someone begotten from above, begotten of eternal seed, but seeds start small, life starts small, and, and grows within us, like seed in dirty soil, or a baby in a womb, life in, in, a, in a body of death. In Romans 7, Paul writes, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of, of death. So if he was alive, he was still trapped in a, in a body of, of death somehow. I mean, gosh, what if you're dead? Seriously, what, what if you're dead? Or, or mostly dead and just like barely alive? Well, that would change things, wouldn't it? I mean, that would change your perspective, right? Because you probably considered yourself alive, but what if, you're, what, if you're, what, if you're, what if you're dead? Hebrews 2, it's through the fear of death that Satan keeps us in lifelong bondage. But what if we're already dead? Why are you afraid, children? Why don't you want us to be your friends? Come on. Speak to us. Speak to us. Tell me what happened. Don't tell her. Don't tell her. Don't tell her. If I tell her, they'll leave us in peace. Mommy! Mommy. Why are you crying, children? What happened in this room? What did your mother do to you? Something about a pillow. Is that how she killed you? A pillow. She didn't kill us. Children, if you're dead, why do you remain in this house? We're not dead. Why do you remain in this We're house? We're not dead.
Wow, see what I mean? I mean, if we were dead, that would like kind of change things, right? That's the movie, The Others. Nicole Kidman plays this woman who lives on the island of Jersey during World War II. Because of a medical condition, a medical condition, her children cannot be exposed to the light. She, she's very religious, keeps the children safe uh, in the dark through fear, fear of hell and especially fear of the others. You see, she's concerned that there are ghosts in the house. But it turns out that they themselves are the ghosts in the house. The others are living people in, in the house. She and her children are dead, but, but because of her pride, she can't admit to, to, to being dead. And Paul writes, and you were dead in your trespasses and, and your sins. Well, in a desperate effort to maintain control, as, as the Nazis advanced, this mother had smothered her children with a pillow and then taken a rifle, put it at her own head, and pulled the trigger, but she wouldn't admit to, to what she'd done. And you were dead in your trespasses and, and your sins, writes Paul. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're dead. I mean, if you take that seriously, what, what Paul just wrote, well, that's particularly offensive, isn't it? Because you're still walking around. That means you're like the walking dead, the, the undead, like a zombie. You know, they're dead and they crave the flesh of the living, a zombie or a vampire. You know, vampires, they crave blood. They, they drink blood, don't walk in the light and can't die because they're already dead. They're the walking dead. They crave body broken and bloodshed. Maybe you're dead like a zombie or a vampire or, or, or a ghost. And, and, and now, let me just say real quick, um, what those people in, in the house were doing is called necromancy, contacting the dead for information. It's strictly forbidden in the Old Testament. And, and yet Jesus contacted the dead, didn't he? When he said, Lazarus, come forth. Well, anyway, seances are forbidden, but not because there's no such things as ghosts, but because there are such things as ghosts. It's just that they don't have any really valuable information. They're, they're, they're dead people. People trapped in this world whose biological bodies have, have died. And yet Paul seems to say, even though our biological bodies are alive, we can still be dead. Do you remember when Jesus rose from the dead? It's pretty amazing, he had a, a spiritual body that could walk through walls. We assume that that body was less real than the walls, but I think that body is probably more solid than the walls and more solid than his disciples. I mean, maybe even as we walk on the surface of this earth, we appear like ghosts to those that have already entered into glory. You know, in scripture, hell, Hades, begins on the surface of the earth and then continues even under the earth after people's biological bodies have died. And yet, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, maybe we're dead or, or mostly dead. And you see, that just changes things, doesn't it? Changes things, changes your perspective. If we're dead or, or barely alive, then number one, number one, maybe things here aren't right but wrong. And strangely, that gives me some hope. The American dream 
is not heaven. What this world is selling is not heaven, but, but hell. And uh, two, if, if I'm dead and I think I'm alive, then, well then trying to save my life is simply preserving my death, right? Uh, so number three, by fearing my death, what am I fearing? I'm fearing the death of death. What's the death of death? That must be life. First Corinthians 15, Paul says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, and Christ destroys death. Jesus Christ is the death of death, and, and Jesus Christ is the life. Well, if I'm dead, number four, maybe I don't know life. I'm the one of the, 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 the walking dead. I'm like my own worst nightmare. And frankly, I found that profoundly insulting, right? Isn't that insulting? I mean, we know what life is. We understand life. Modern philosophers and scientists have, have told us what, what life is. Uh, in 1859, you, you know, this Charles Darwin published The uh, Origin of Species, or originally On the Origin of Species. It really didn't explain life, but described changes in life, speciation through natural selection, what we commonly call the survival of the fittest. It really doesn't explain life, and yet that's the story that we tell ourselves. Ask psychologists like Carl Jung and sociologists like Peter Berger teach us, it's the stories that we tell ourselves that shape us as persons and shape us as societies, our stories or, or our archetypes. So, so this is an archetype. Recognize it? And so modern man has come to believe that life is the result of violent Competition, one organism protecting itself from the others or exalting itself over the others. In the words of the Prussian philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, it's the meaning of the earth, the will to power. Lo, I preach to you the Superman, wrote Nietzsche. The Superman is the meaning of the earth. What is good, all that heightens in man the feeling of power, the desire for power, power itself. And what is bad, all that comes from weakness. Friedrich Nietzsche hated Christianity, and especially our Messiah. Nietzsche believed that the Superman was the next evolutionary step, what man was destined to become. Nietzsche and, and Darwin had a profound effect on men like Adolf Hitler, who actually had his soldiers carry Nietzsche's works in their backsack, believing that the Aryan race, the Third Reich, was the next evolutionary step. Profound effect on men like Hitler and men like Marx and, and Stalin, who believed that the communist state was the next evolutionary step, and perhaps profound effect on men like, like us, Americans. Because we're really into competition, right? That's what makes us strong. That's what, that's what we say, competition. So when I was a kid, the teacher, for instance, always graded on a curve. So my success was dependent on some other little kid's failure. And their... Uh, success meant my failure. 
We all learned that lesson well. Not, not spelling, but competition. So even if you failed at the spelling B, you didn't fail at competition. You just found those good spellers and beat the crap out of them after school. You learned the lesson. That's life. And that's my life. That's what I learned in school. I am the product of violent competition. I am because one particular night in December, sometime in December of 1960, one billion competitors strained at the starting gate, and then at the right moment, the one billion sprang into the vast deference, raced past the seminal vesicles, into the urethra, from whence they launched into the vaginal cavity, where a furious battle ensued. Thousands, hundreds of thousands, uh, millions would be lost at this point. However, a few million, a few million would reach the cervix. Perhaps only a million would make it through the mucosal, mucosal barrier. Of those hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands would would race up the wrong fallopian tube, and so out of one billion, just a few, just a few, the few, the proud, the fittest, just a few would make the journey to the ripened ovum, and only one, only one out of one billion would enter. Only one made it, only one became a somebody, and I am that somebody. I am the sperm that made it. <laughs> so when you're down and you're depressed, you feel insignificant, just remember, you are the sperm that made it. Yeah, out of one billion. Well, the sperm that, sperm that made it. In some form, you see, that's the story that we tell ourselves, right? I'm valuable, I'm a winner, I matter, I'm good because I, I got created, I made it, I graduated from high school. I, I got the job, I was chosen for the promotion. I'm smarter, I'm richer, I'm more loving, I'm, I'm more Christ-like than the others. I'm more humble than the others. I'm the sperm that made it. Well, unfortunately, we live in a world full of like seven billion other sperm that made it to this life. But what about the next life? <laughs> Y'all my competitors? What about the next life? Hey, did you know that Jesus is the sperm that made it? I was just thinking about that this week. Places like Galatians 3.16, Paul makes it clear. Jesus is the promised seed, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, the only sinless man, the superman, the eschatos Adam. And seed, check this out, you can check it out with Alice, and seed in, in, in Greek is, is sperma. He's the sperma that made it. But not because he strove to be first. Actually, because he chose to be last. He, he would swim in the opposite direction. Not because he glorified himself, but because he humbled himself. Not because he made himself something, but Philippians 2, 7, he made himself nothing. John 12, 46, Jesus said this to his disciples. Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat, that's a seed, falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. 
That's, that's, that's more seed and, and, and not alone. And you see, that's a, a very different archetype, isn't it? P- perhaps I'm making too much of this, but the sperm that reaches the egg is actually the first one to die, <laughs> to sacrifice itself. Uh, it dies in, in the ovum, and that's life. And that's the creation of my life. John 1, 3 and 4, in him was life. Or you can translate it, in him was made life. And the life was the light of men. Well, well, maybe life then isn't a violent competition, but a loving sacrifice. One cell sacrificing for another cell. One member serving the next member. One body part sacrificing for, for another body part. You know, if one cell in my body competes with another cell in my body, do do you know what that's called? Cancer. Not life. So maybe my life isn't the product of violent competition, but but a sacrifice of love 2,000 years ago. And maybe even 52 years ago. Not two people competing, but just the opposite. Two people humbling themselves, stripped of their fig leaves, so to speak, in a covenant that formed a sanctuary and produced communion, and that sacrificial communion of love was life and gave birth to my life. And you see, that is a very different story. Hey, have you ever seen this bumper sticker? Jesus fish eating the Darwin fish. I mean, you've seen that, right, on cars? Maybe you have it on your car. Um, uh, Is that why Jesus is life? Shouldn't the Jesus fish be dying for the Darwin fish? Saying something like, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it. This is the blood of my covenant shed for you. Drink drink it. You know, in my experience, most ardent creationists are social Darwinists. And worse yet, spiritual Darwinists. So so we who preach Jesus with our lips usually teach Darwin with, with our lives. Ironically, it was Nietzsche that said, beware when fighting the dragon, lest you become the dragon. Well, maybe, I'm I'm just saying, maybe we think we're alive and we don't even know what life is. Well, anyway, Paul writes, and you were dead in in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, literally this eon, this age, following the prince of the power of the air, the dragon, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. That must be like a living death. Among whom we all once lived in the passions, literally epithumia, lusts of, of our flesh, carrying out the desires, thelema, the will of, of the body, the sark, the flesh, the will of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like 
like the rest of mankind. That's huge. I mean, if we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, I think that means that we also had or have a vessel of wrath like the rest of mankind. Romans uh, 9.22, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction uh, like Esau, like Pharaoh, like Judas, like Paul, prepared for destruction that God might exhibit the riches of his glory in vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand. What is the vessel of wrath prepared for destruction? Well, wouldn't it be this body of death? This flesh, which scripture clearly says cannot inherit the the kingdom of heaven, it's like the vessel that, that I live in. And what's wrong with it? I mean, you can pick some things out, but what's wrong with our flesh? I mean, you know, what's the lust of the flesh? What's the lust of the, have you, I'm sure you've wrestled with that if you read scripture at all. What is the lust of the flesh? What's, what's the flesh? What's the lust of the flesh? Did you know that Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he literally said this, in lust, I have lusted to eat this dinner with you, this Passover with you. That Passover. So, I mean, it's not simply lust, right, or desire or will. The, the problem is the desire and will of our flesh, our flesh. And, it, and it's not the, the things that we desire, but how we desire them. Because listen to what Paul wrote. Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And so maybe you thought the lust of the flesh was stuff like sex or wine or food. And yet Jesus turns food into a sacrament that we're commanded to eat. He turns wine into a sacrament that we're commanded to to drink. And sex is a sacrament in the covenant of marriage. Ephesians 5, exhibiting the faithful relationship between Christ the groom and his bride, the church. It's the first commandment in scripture spoken before the fall. Be fruitful and multiply. Make fruit. That's, That's more seed. So anyway, what's, what's the will of the flesh? Well, listen closely to 1 John 2, 16. I, I find this amazing. All that is in the world, the epithumia, the, the lust, the, des, the desire of the flesh, and lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, literally, that's the boast of bios. Bios is a Greek word from which we get our word biology. Uh, bios life as opposed to, to Zoe life. That's another word for life. The boast of bios, well, that, that would be like one life exalting itself over the others. I mean, that's, that's survival of, of the fittest. The, the lust of the flesh is the boast of bios. <laughs> that's amazing. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes, the boast of bios is not of the Father, but of this world. And this world passes away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever, abides into the age. What's the will of God? Relentless, sacrificial love. And what's the will of my flesh? Pride. Exalting myself over the others. 
You see, Jesus doesn't have a problem with eating. He just has a problem with eating in disregard for the others. So in scripture, in the, in the gospel, Jesus is always eating with the others at, at banquets. That's tick the Pharisees off. And Jesus doesn't seem to have a problem with wine. You know, people drink wine at parties in order to forget themselves and connect with the others. Jesus turns wine into a, a sacrament. That means that it reveals something else. Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 5, Paul also writes this, don't be drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. You see, I think he's saying the Spirit will help you lose yourself and find the others. The Spirit will humble, humble you so, so you can enjoy the party, because we all know the thing that wrecks a party, pride, people fool themselves, wrecks parties. And Jesus certainly isn't against sex. He's against bad sex. Self-centered, unfaithful, arrogant sex. And God created sex, you see, as a sign of faithful communion with Christ and the covenant of grace giving birth to life. In this world of space and time, while I'm limited in, in this body, I can only give myself fully to one other person. And um, that's called the covenant of, of marriage. But you see, that, that communion is just a taste of a far greater communion. So if you don't have that communion right now, don't stress out about it. Don't try to seize it. Don't stress out about it. Um, um, you will have that communion and you will not be disappointed and God will use all of your longing for his purposes. But that communion, you see, is just a taste of a far greater communion and well, that just gives me a whole lot of hope. I read an amazing article in Scientific American this, this last week. Listen to this. Scientists were shocked to discover this about five years ago, running tests on the brain. Uh, they discovered that at the climax of good sexual communion, much of a woman's brain actually shuts off. It just shuts off. To use Paul's term, the desires of the mind. The bride's brain, at a certain point, actually shuts off. In particular, and I quote, the dorsomedial prefrontal cortex, which has an apparent role in moral reasoning and social judging, writes the author of the article. In biblical terms, that would be the knowledge of good and evil, <laughs> with which the bride judges herself, judges her groom, and judges her entire world. Shuts off, and it's precisely when that happens that she experiences communion, and it feels like ecstasy. It's precisely then that two become one flesh in the image of God. It's at that point where my bride's pleasure literally becomes my pleasure, where humiliation becomes exaltation, where we surrender vainglory and taste real glory, where I'm no longer alone, trapped in this body of death. So anyway, do you see the problem with the flesh? Except for uh, perhaps a few sacred sacramental moments of communion, my flesh is cut off from life. My flesh only feels its own pain. That's the problem with these bodies. Barry gets hurt, my flesh doesn't feel it. 
My flesh only feels its own pain. It only feels its own pleasure. My flesh thinks it is its own life, and and yet I'm destined to be a part of a greater life, Christ's life, Christ's body. You know, a body only feels pain when it's divided. When one member boasts over the other members. When one cell starts consuming other cells in disobedience to the head, well that's cancer, that's, that's death. But when all members submit to the head and serve each other, that's life. And it feels like ecstasy, ecstasis out of normal. I mean, maybe one day I will feel everyone's pleasure. So Barry eats a cheeseburger and I'll taste it. Jeff rejoices and I'll rejoice. Mike wins and I win. I'll feel everyone's pleasure and there'll be no pain. For God has united all things, anakephalio, under one sacred head now wounded. That's life. But boasting is death. Why does God hate our arrogant boasting? Because he's insecure? Because he needs us to boost his, his ego? It's because he's proud? Like Andrew said last week, no, God is not proud. That's been revealed in Jesus. God is, is not proud. So maybe he wants us to stop boasting because boasting is death. And humility is life. Jesus the Christ is life. We were by nature children of wrath, writes Paul, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. Literally, are having been saved. For by grace you have been saved, by grace through faith. And this, this salvation and this faith is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, like those vessels of mercy, that we should walk in them. I mean, wow, it's pretty clear that we have absolutely no grounds for boasting. Not in our works, not in our choices, not in our salvation, not even in our faith, especially not in our faith. Are you proud to call yourself a Christian? I have decided, are you proud? Because then maybe you're not a Christian. For you don't believe that you were saved by grace through faith, and this not of yourself, lest ye not boast. You know, religious folks are often the very best at boasting. Pastors are often professional boasters. I mean, we're, we're pretty good at it. We're good at it. And it was to them that Paul was usually referring when he talked about the flesh and the desires of the flesh. Religious folks use the knowledge of good and evil. That's, 
That's what they grasp um, to exalt themselves over the others. That is, we use the law to judge others and exalt ourselves. We, we use the knowledge of love to not love our neighbors. That's what Jesus was talking to that lawyer about, remember? Uh, we use the knowledge of the good to crucify the good. To, to exalt myself, I judge my neighbor and crucify Jesus who dies for the last and the least of these, my neighbors! Duh! Wow, I mean, like my pride must totally blind me to the depths of my own sin, my transgressions. I crucify Christ and, and, and think to myself, well, that's just the way the world is. And it is just the way the world is. You see, Charles Darwin was not an idiot. The survival of the fittest explains this world of ours. I mean, it describes our flesh and explains death, but not life. Not love. Why one cell would sacrifice for another cell? Why one member would serve another member? It, it doesn't explain Life, Jesus is life. It doesn't explain life, it explains death. Natural selection, I think the Bible calls that sin. It's the way the world operates, the spirit of the age, bondage to the dragon, the prince of the power of the air. It's the very will of our flesh, the desire of our minds. Natural selection is death. Natural selection is death. God's election is life. Natural selection is sin. God's election is grace. Don't confuse the two. You see, we have thoroughly underestimated the extent of sin in this world and the depth of sin in our own flesh. And thus, I think we have utterly missed the glory, the wonder of God's grace and the scandal that is grace. I mean, it's like we're dead and, and we don't even know we're dead. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Um, we need to pause for just a minute uh, at this point. In an effort um, to raise money for the budget, we're going to watch a few um, commercial advertisements. There's just no quit in America, and you're seeing that right now. Over 5 million new jobs. Exports up 41%. Home values rising. Our auto industry back and our heroes are coming home. We're not there yet, but we've made real progress. And the last thing we should do is turn back now. Here's my plan for the next four years. Making education and training a national priority. Building on our manufacturing boom. Boosting American-made energy. Reducing the deficits responsibly by cutting where we can and asking the wealthy to pay a little more. And ending the war in Afghanistan so we can do some nation building here at home. That's the right path. So read my plan, compare it to Governor Romney's, and decide which is better for you. It's an honor to be your president, and I'm asking for your vote. So together, we can keep moving America forward. I'm Barack Obama, and I approve this message. There are two very different paths the country can take. One is a path represented by the president, which at the end of four years would mean we'd have $20 trillion in debt heading towards Greece. I'll get us on track to a balanced budget. The president's path will mean continuing declining in take-home pay. I want to make sure our take-home pay turns around and starts to grow. The 
president's path means 20 million people out of work struggling for a good job. I'll get people back to work with 12 million new jobs. I'm going to make sure that we get people off of food stamps, not by cutting the program, but by getting them good jobs. America's going to come back. And for that to happen, we're going to have to have a president who can work across the aisle. I'll work with you. I'll lead you in an open and honest way. And I ask for your vote. I'd like to be the next president of the United States to support and help this great nation and to make sure that we all together maintain America as the hope of the earth. I'm Mitt Romney and I approve this message. message. Wow. <laughs> One of those messages was different than the other two, right? And, and two of those paths, well, they really were the same path, and yet there was another path that was very different, the path, the message, the word, the way. And how do I know that God approved that message? Well, even though he had made himself last and least. Even though he was numbered with the transgressors, even though he became nothing, God raised him from the dead. And God seated him in the heavenly places far above every rule and power and authority. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. No end. And just let me say, I really agree with Barack Obama on, on certain things. And I really agree with Mitt Romney on certain things. But neither of them is the Messiah. And the hope of this earth is not America. And if we think it is, if we say it is, we are like just blatant idolaters. Boasting is death. And humility is life. Life. Not just life to come, but life right now. I mean, you know this. You know this. Exalting yourself, you, you, you know this, right? Exalting yourself is an immense amount of work. <laughs> and it's not only an immense amount of work, it's a lie. 
And it's not only a lie, it's death. It cuts you off from the others and traps you in fear, utterly alone. But you have been saved by grace through faith, and that is not of yourself, lest ye not boast. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? I mean, with even a mustard seed of faith, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you? All right, well then turn to your neighbor. Look him in the eye. Go ahead, turn to your neighbor. Just turn to someone. I'm the pastor. Do it, Pam. Turn to, your, turn to Norm or your mom. Just turn and look him in the eye. And this is what I want you to say. I want you to say, I'm not better than you. Okay, now keep looking at him. Not better than you. And in response, say, right. <laughs> You're not better than me. <laughs> I mean, isn't that like kind of just liberating, you know, just, ah, the party can start now. Relief. And check this out, you didn't even have to get drunk to do it, right? <laughs> now, I don't mean that you may not do some things better than the others. You actually do do better things, some things better than the others. It's just that all you do do is good work, which God prepared beforehand that you would walk in it. God prepared it. So every good deed is a gift. Even your will to do the good deed is, is a gift. The energy, exertion, the trauma, even the violence of the experience, that's all, that's all a gift. Your, your good free choice is a gift. That's what I'm saying. Faith, hope, and love is a gift. Salvation is a gift. Your life is a gift. In other words, Jesus the Christ is a gift. And if we really believe that, well, we won't be a party about to happen. We will be a party that is happening. We'll share our lives in common, our goods in common. And we'll all be good and we'll all be free and we will need no laws. We will need no worldly government. We will be the presence of a better government, a better kingdom, the kingdom of heaven on the face of this fallen earth, the church, the kingdom of God. If, if, if we believe. And you see, maybe we don't believe or at least not much. And we can't just make ourselves believe because then we could boast in our belief, right? And then it wouldn't be grace or faith. We wouldn't even be alive or saved. You know that movie, The Others, is a tragedy because the mother convinces the children at the end to repeat this phrase over and over again. This house belongs to us. This house belongs to us. This house belongs to me. It belongs to me. It belongs to me. And so they drive away the others. The living. Ironically, at, at the end of the movie, she sees her sin, at least in some form, but she doesn't see Mercy, and even more ironically, her name is Grace, but she doesn't see grace. She doesn't understand mercy. I killed my children. I got the rifle. 
pulled the trigger. See, hell is believing that all you need is another chance. Heaven is not another chance. Heaven is not one more try. Heaven is not another chance. Heaven is a new nature, a new will. And that is why the gospel, the good news, is good news. And that is why I proclaim it to you. That is what I proclaim, that on the night he was betrayed by all humanity, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take it and eat it. And in the same manner, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Take it and drink it. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. The life is in the blood. You see, this is grace. And he is life. This is the body and blood you crave. This is the body and blood you need. This is the body and blood he gives. This is the eternal seed. He's not just giving you another chance. He's giving you himself. He's giving you his nature. He's giving you his will. He's giving you his life. If you come to this table in hope, the seed has already taken root in you. But if you believe that all you need is another chance? Well, in chapter four of Ephesians, we'll find that Jesus even descends into hell. But why would you want to spend any time in hell when you can begin to live right here right now. So let's pray. Pray this with me if, if you would. Or maybe if God would in you. Pray, pray this, just pray this with me. You can pray it silently in your heart after me. Lord God, in the name of Jesus, I surrender my life, which is death. And I ask for your life. I receive 
your life. You give me your life, which is eternal. Dark cups are wine. The light cup is juice. Tear off a piece of the bread. Dip it in the cup. And place the eternal seed in this old body of death. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, now listen, if you prayed that prayer for the first time or you came to the table for the first time, you need to understand something, and that's this. You're alive. You're not dead. The, the, the real you, the true you, the one seated in the heavenly places is alive. And the other one's a lie. You're not dead. So you must consider yourself dead to sin, dead to death, and alive in Christ Jesus, all right? You're, you're forgiven. You've been grafted into a great tree. You've been grafted into a body, the body of Christ. And what happens if you don't believe it? Well, you know, the other day, my finger poked my eye. I mean, it's just like, it, it kind of ticked my eye off, you know? Uh, but uh, uh, what happened? Did, did my eye, did the rest of my body cut my finger off? No. My eye uh, spoke through, uh, my took, I forgive you, finger, and then we just went on with life, okay? You're part of Christ's body. He's not gonna forsake his own body, and you need to believe it. And for the others of you, that you, I mean, you've been a Christian a long time, you need to believe it as well. And you also need to believe this. No boasting. This is the good news. You may not boast. Now, at first, that sounds like a drag, right? I mean, because I did all this stuff in there. I'm going to boast. Well, no, you may not boast. That's the good news. At first, it hurts, but then it sets you, it sets you free. You may not boast. But, but, but you can boast in Jesus. You can boast in Jesus. And if you boast in Jesus, well, and you look at Jesus, then Jesus is going to start like boasting in his father, saying, well, everything I do comes from the father. It all comes from the father. And then the father's gonna start boasting in the son. Well, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then something's gonna rise up in you, which is the Holy Spirit, which is gonna get you to boast in the father and the son. And then the son's gonna take his crown or, and uh, you're gonna maybe put it even on your head. And then you can take the crown, throw it at his feet. And then you can put it on your head, throw it at his feet. And, and, and then you're home, then you're home. In the land of love, the economy of grace for which you have been predestined. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. That's a commandment. Believe it. In his name, amen.